I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Celluloid. This week, we are going to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King. The story of Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill. And, I mean, is there... Do I spoil this? Is There can't be a spoiler. Like, I knew the the bare bones of this, but I was just going to give the most basic what this movie is, and I'm like, do I have to put up a spoiler warning like 30 seconds into the episode, Andrew? Um, I think you might have to, and that'll get into something we're going to touch on a little bit later. Yeah, um, we'll get, we'll just get to that later. First of all, welcome, Andrew, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. A little, uh, how the sausage is made for the people listening here, is to one another, we're usually heard but not seen. And because of some technical innovations in the world of podcasting, we are looking at one another face-to-face for the first time in like three years. And I gotta say, despite the age in our hearts and uh, in the way we complain about our lives to one another, we've aged. We haven't really in the face. I think we're both looking great. So we look uh, the same. Very we, similar. We look the same. I've I've got a big beard now. That's literally the only difference, I think. Um, but no, yeah, this is our first time in a number of years. This is how we started out, and we used to see each other. But you know, we just we developed a shorthand where we didn't even need that for reference, Andrew. Lots of people for the conversation to to flow naturally. They feel it's best to have video. Maybe it will work in our favor, but we've got by okay without it. But yeah, we can now see each other. Thankfully, none of you can see us, though. So we'll talk about what hopefully you have seen, what hopefully you've seen for this week's episode, and that is Judas and the Black Messiah. You know, I won't go straight into, you know, what this is, plot details-wise, to some extent, because of what I've almost already done, which is put up a spoiler? I don't know. Weird territory. But what we will do is kind of set the table a little bit here. I'm going to lean on you quite a lot. Andrew, because this is American history. I don't know to what extent this is widely documented, universally known American history, but it is American history. It's a story that I had the vaguest awareness of before this. Um, I knew about Fred Hampton. Knew about Fred Hampton. I knew, we'll say, the, the end of his life. Um, I I knew the the end his life met. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything about Bill O'Neill. Um, didn't really know a whole lot about the Black Panther Party in Chicago. So there was a lot in here that was new to me, and it probably served me well as a viewer of the movie. But I am curious, and I'm not entirely sure just how different the experience is going to be for most american viewers watching so you my u.s correspondent here andrew i'm going to turn over to you to kind of i guess give a little bit of context or background what was your reaction to this and where were you coming into this particular story and chapter of american history so i had very little familiarity with fred hampton if at all and the black panther party in general i mean the biggest takeaway I had from seeing this for the first time was that I feel like the American education system, at least where I went to school in 
North Carolina at times in a pretty rural area and in a not so rural area, I feel like uh, black history has been done a disservice in our schools. And I feel like we aren't taught about situations like in this film. I think um, I think schools here take a very simplistic and unfair view to black history and the civil rights era in general. It's almost like, OK, February's rolled around. So teachers break out their 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 black history curriculums and they teach about Rosa Parks or the March on Selma or Martin Luther King in general. And they don't really delve into the true issues of the era and the true struggle that African-Americans had to just achieve basic equality. And obviously we're still not even there yet because racism is so entrenched in this country. But this told a story I was unfamiliar um, with. And I think as I've aged and particularly in the last year, as I've tried to just break through all kinds of entrenched racism that's in my society and the lessons that I've been taught in schools and, and just trying to learn for myself and, and become a better ally because I think uh, white people in general, especially in my area, even if you're someone that hasn't considered themselves a racist, I think we've all failed um, <laughs> as white people just because of a, a lack of acknowledging privilege. Now, I guess that's neither here nor there <laughs> with this whole conversation, but I think it's just something important for me to say something that I reckon with every day as I try to get better and go forward in this country. But yeah, this tells a story of something that I think is just not told about how um, black people were, were fighting for their rights and were treated by the U S government as like an enemy of the state to a certain extent. And I think one thing that the FBI tries to paint as a picture in this story is that, that play, uh, Organizations like the Black Panther Party were um, being fought against because they were trying to stop violence when they're really trying to stop the spread of ideas and the idea that black people deserve the same humanity as everyone else. I think what this story does is it really highlights those little told stories in the American education system that I probably should have sought out for myself much sooner. And it does so giving an accurate representation of the role the American government has played against making the struggle for equal rights such a difficult process. And the story itself um, really did blow me away, especially as you learn just like how young the leaders in these communities were. Fred Hampton in particular, I'll throw up the spoiler warning now, as Adam was saying, trying to give the description of what this movie is. It's the story of... Fred Hampton's rise as the chairman of the Black uh, Panther Party in Chicago and his assassination that was orchestrated by the U.S. government, the FBI. And he was 21 at the time of his death. So this is a really powerful movie that's come out at a time where it's more resonant than ever. And what it's it's really important, I think, that this movie gets seen and be as widely distributed as it is being put up by Warner Brothers because it is a little told story to... Uh, dumb white guys like me living in rural rural North Carolina who just didn't have access to these stories until um, great filmmakers have g given the keys to, to tell these stories. So I, I was shocked by it, but also enlightened and and glad that it's being told. You mentioned, and I just want to dive into this a little bit more, because your experience of education on these kind of things 
sounds exactly like what I got in Ireland in doing like US history and the civil rights movement. So like you mentioned Martin Luther King, you mentioned Rosa Parks. Am I to read into that that say Malcolm X, for example, not quite as prevalent a figure in kind of education in high school history? It's definitely a name that's mentioned, but one thing that I think... Um... I'm just even... what I, The reason I'm asking that, because I think it feeds into a lot of the interesting stuff in this film and some of the real-life interesting things that I wasn't quite aware of, um, only kind of knowing the basics about Fred Hampton, which was the Rainbow Coalition that he founded. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And that's particularly striking in the film where you see a Confederate flag... And Fred Hampton strolls into this room and, you know, things unfold from there. But one of the things that I guess is most striking about the Black Panthers as opposed to, and even if we want to bring it to an individual figure, Fred Hampton as opposed to Martin Luther King, or even Malcolm X, although, you know, the Nation of Islam, there's there's lots of other reasons too why that, why that becomes a different thing in terms of how, I guess, the largely you white authors of u.s history particularly at like a curriculum level uh might choose to go one way or the other is like fred hampton and the black panther party were about as far left as anything has really been in a real meaningful sense that was trying to do real kind of concrete good in local communities in the u.s and it's so striking because those kind of values to this day, like still get a lot of resistance in the U S I guess dating back to McCarthyism. Like there's just this weird mistrust of anything that is beyond just slightly left of center. So I'm like, is it just very much like it's easy, Martin Luther King. It's easy to package. I have a dream right that's what happens here when we're looking at like this key moment in a country on the other side of the ocean but i wouldn't have thought as much as i know from conversations with you and in talking about lots of films this isn't the first time this kind of topic has come up where you refer to just things you felt like you should have been taught about but weren't over the course of your education i still would have thought some of this would have fed in a bit more than maybe it seems like it did I think tangentially, but like the FBI tries to paint to Bill O'Neill, for example, in this story, it's like the Black Panthers in in education and in schools were painted as like this extremist group Mm -hmm. when really, I mean, I don't think they were extremists at all when you consider what they were fighting for. So that's kind of where it lies. It's where, like you said, they, in schools, they would like package up in a very specifically curated curriculum aspects of what Martin Luther King Jr. taught, but leave out certain aspects. And it's like everything would be tied back to peace or um, equality and civil disobedience, and nothing would ever um, really be tied back to the struggle and the violence that sometimes is required for revolution in a country. Um, when it comes to race relations or something like that. So it was very sanitized is the best way I would describe what we were taught. 
Well, it's that's what it seems like, and I, the reason even I was unpacking further is because that's one of the the early scenes, one of the first times we, I guess, we really see Fred Hampton in action in the film is when he's kind of speaking to this idea of revolution and why he feels like it's the only way forward. Um, I, I guess, and that was part of the, I guess, the struggle at the time for what is the best way to go forward with this? What is the best way to advance our cause, advance this particular fight? It was certainly something that I think is more often explored in the difference between uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. But here we're seeing kind of, again, an extension of that. And it, it seems kind of interesting. And, and I suppose all that surprisingly, the more revolutionary ideology um, is maybe a little bit more absent from the the history books. And I guess part of that is that if there's a need for revolution, I guess just the situation itself has to be much worse to begin with. There's less to deny when it's people are being driven to these particular means. It's maybe just not quite as easy to you know, brush off and post in a palatable way that suggests, oh yeah, well, things were bad, but we've moved on, which as you've already alluded to, went from being something that seemed to be kind of this idea that was out there in the Obama years to something which we all now know it couldn't be further from the truth. So I guess that's that's sort of the background to to set up this film or to set up some of the stuff around it. And we'll, we'll come back to some of those issues through discussing it. Um, thoughts on the film itself then so particularly as something that you weren't particularly aware of the details how did you find this particular telling of the story I, I thought it was a, a really well crafted film I think it, it's centered on obviously two actors and, and one actress doing the primary heavy lifting there uh, Daniel Kaluuya as, as Fred Hampton and, and Lakeith Stanfield as Bill O'Neill, who was the FBI informant who was recruited by um, FBI agent Bill Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons, um, to infiltrate the Black Panther Party in Chicago and basically take take them down from the inside, in particular Hampton. I think each of the, the performances brings a, a humanity to the story where it's like you can almost identify which, with whichever character you're like kind of walking in on or, or living with for that particular scene. And I think that's really what makes the movie stand out as a success to me because you do have to kind of go from character to character and it's not really just one person's story. It'd be easy to see this as Fred Hampton's story or Bill O'Neill's story, but I think it's really all of their stories and the the story of the party itself. And, and those performances really anchor the movie. Um, I had, you know, some issues with the pace pacing in some parts of the film, but overall I think it's just a, a really neatly packaged story. Um, and one that kind of had me gripped from beginning to end, especially as someone who knew the direction that the story was headed, but didn't know exactly what endpoint we'd, we would reach. I also want to say that I did mention uh, an actress who's fantastic that I cannot remember seeing in anything. I could just be misremembering, but Dominique Fishback, is that, is that mm-hmm. how is that her name? That's correct. Yeah, I thought she was wonderful. It's Deborah Johnson, who's Hampton's girlfriend and uh, the the mother of his son, Fred Hampton Jr., who I think now plays a role in um, various organizations pushing for um, progressive change in America. So uh, I thought she was fantastic as well. But yeah, those uh, 
each of the actors really brought a a a layer to the characters where it's you know we're obviously uh, as an audience rooting for fred hampton and the black panther party and their cause but as we see the internal struggle that bill o'neill's having as he infiltrates this world and has to essentially tear down people that he's growing to respect i think that the pain that seeps out of him as is really uh interesting and makes that performance very fully formed but yeah despite despite the the pacing issues or and some issues i might have had with some of the as the way the the way the plot carries out like i thought we maybe needed needed to see a little more time with how o'neill eventually made his way to the group and and things of that nature and but i thought it was just a really well-told story and one of the more entertaining films i've seen in a while i mean i know this will be um considered for the 2021 oscars given the way uh timelines have shifted and everything and i think it's is as deserving as being nominated as anything that'll make our best of 2020 list that we'll talk about probably closer to april yeah 100 on that i mean one of the things that's really interesting with this film is its structure and how it's there in the title first of all i mean i was wary at the start of spoilers but that is ridiculous. The first word in the title is Judas. And, you know, if you want to kind of continue along those lines and unpack, it becomes pretty clear. Like the movie is in the title. Um, it's all there. So it's not working with suspense in that way. It's understanding that although not everyone may know all the details of the story, a lot of people will. So it's about the journey and it's about really, I guess, getting incredibly strong work with the characters and getting to spend time with the characters and getting a real sense of it. So that, you know, if there are a lot of people who know where it's going, or if the film itself is kind of pointing you to where it's going, that by the time you get there, the impact is no less because you understand the people involved all the more and you understand the the context and the situation um, at which the assassination took place. So with that, that's kind of an interesting shape for the movie. And then I think you're right in saying there are some pacing issues. I don't think anything major, but it does it does have moments where it just lags a little bit in the middle. And I don't necessarily think it's the film's fault because the film is incredibly loyal to, you know, real events. Um they did at various times throughout the, the process of development consider, well, what way could we shape this? You know, what what changes could we make to make this, I guess, better for the big screen? And they ultimately felt that wasn't right. The Hampton family then, when they became involved, they were obviously very much kind of adamant about wanting this to straight, stay true to Fred Hampton's life, to his legacy. But even with that, the fact that they've made a movie that does that, um, unlike most films of this nature, like I won't call it a biopic because it's not a biopic, but unlike most biopics, I'll unpack that it's not a biopic in a minute, um, but it's not doing that thing where, you know, in sticking to the real life story, we're avoiding something that we would have to do with a lot of other traditional biopics where we'd say we're, we're purely talking about it as a film. We wouldn't have opened with the conversation we had because so much of it may be just kind of 
actually detached from the reality, detached from the facts, and just the big screen version of it. But I think what makes it more impressive that they did that in this instance, before even getting to the fact that they made a really, really good movie that's incredibly entertaining, is Bill O'Neill is not a guy that there's a whole lot of information out there on. Um, I guess in a lot of ways, Bill O'Neill's story and his story's conclusion is the surprise for the audience. It's the thing that people who may even know the details of Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton being assassinated, they're not going to be fully kind of clued in on the ins and outs of Bill O'Neill's life because no one is, <laughs> is really the reality of it. He's a very mysterious figure who, as we see through Lakeith Sanfield's performance in the film, does something that in a lot of ways is very difficult to explain, to understand. He goes on a, a real journey that could only have been filled with tremendous kind of inner conflict and the events later in his life would suggest that was the case. And with this film, the fact that it was made like kind of in constant dialogue and with the assistance of the Hamptons, I believe Fred Hampton Jr. was on set for almost the entire shoot. The fact that they made this film and so much of it is actually about Bill O'Neill, the guy who assassinated, not with his own hands, you know, but who basically, I guess, enabled that, that assassination to happen, is kind of incredible. And I can't think of many examples like that, where something stays so true to the facts. And it, I don't know if the film is always sympathetic to him, but it just it chooses to spend so much time with that character and more time with that character. Because in sticking to real life events, well, Fred Hampton goes to prison for a period in the middle of the movie, and I think that plays into some of the pacing issues. But I think there's just kind of a, a really interesting kind of series of decisions and events that make the dynamics of this film very different to what would traditionally be considered a biopic. And for better or worse, you know, what, what does and doesn't work in those more traditional films. This is something different. And I think that also empowers it to be something that's kind of really bold and bracing. Like, knowing, not knowing Fred Hampton, but sitting down knowing, okay, what this movie was about. Like, you knew it was about the Black Panthers, did you? Yes, I did know that. Were you expecting this still? Like, this is a... You watch this on HBO Max, right? I did. And this, the you know, the new ugly Warner Brothers logo, which, you know, that's for another time. I really hate it, Andrew. It's, it's an affront. I don't like it at all. I know people went through this, like, 40 years ago when they changed the one that you and I would be more familiar with, but it really bothers me. Anyway... When that logo came up, were you expecting something kind of as, I don't know, powerful, political as this film is? Because studios, and studios is the wrong word here, because what I re really mean is like multi-billion dollar media conglomerates. They don't make stuff like this ever. Like it just doesn't happen anymore. I think I expect it to be glossier, not in terms of how the film looks, because I think it looks great. But, you know, that 
sanitized version of history that I told you about learning growing up. It's it's almost like I expected not the Warner Brothers version because I don't think that's like the the way I would describe it. But as much as an R-rated film can be, I maybe expected the the Disney version when it was put out by a major studio, or at very at very least the the Hollywood version. So I don't I don't know that I necessarily expected. Uh, I mean, some of the things in this film like really sat with me after seeing it um, in a in a dark way. And I don't necessarily know that I expected that. There are two things in particular that I think we'll we'll uh, get to a little bit later. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this movie pulled any punches in a way that a studio movie, major studio movie that got note, noted to death typically would, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean. There's a couple things at play here. First, Shaka King is the director. Um, it's not his directorial debut, but I think it may as well be for most average moviegoers. This is not someone who has been making studio movies. In fact, nothing of the kind. He hasn't even been making anything like this. His background was more tied to comedy. Um, this is a, a story that originated with the Lucas brothers. That's who brought it to Shaka King. Again, we're talking comedy background rather than anything kind of rooted in not just in drama, but in Hollywood drama. So I think to begin with, that's interesting. And then a key part in, I guess, getting the wheels of motion on this is Ryan Cougar is the producer. And maybe at this point, that just buys enough freedom to be able to say, yeah, we're going to make this film and it is going to be as political as a Fred Hampton film should be because although that's the logical way to do it, to do it within a within a Hollywood studio, within a studio like Warner Brothers, like, it doesn't happen. And it's not very easy. It, you just don't see this at all. Um, the interesting thing with the HBO Max dump, I guess, so far is, one, it's led to the release of movies that are very much unlike the majority of movies that I've seen over the last year, certainly majority of movies made and released via Hollywood, because these look like old school, big screen movies. There's some things coming up in the Warner slate. I think Tom and Jerry comes out next month. I don't know if that's going to fit that bill, Andrew, but this and the little things, which we didn't talk about. And I think for pretty good reasons, um, yeah, even in its case, for all its flaws, it had a certain charm to me in being like, oh yeah, this is this is a capital M movie. This is like, I can imagine being in a theater and seeing this, as opposed to a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I guess studios have felt, oh, and that's that's good to go to VOD. Or a lot of the stuff Netflix have released over the past year. So that in its that in its own right is is interesting but i'm kind of intrigued by ryan cougar producing this and shaka king directing because i mean we've probably not on this podcast i think maybe on our tenant episode our guest david 21 might have brought up black panther and the fact that it's not a favorite really of either of us it's not it wasn't his favorite, I don't think, either. Um, we, I guess we just were not quite on the same page as it seems like everyone else with that. That's my general reaction to Cougar's movies. 
with the exception of Fruitvale Station, which I really love and I thought was something incredible. I just haven't really got much out of where his career has gone since. I'm not a Creed fan. Um, that frequently starts arguments with people. Uh, I don't think the movie's very good. And Black Panther didn't really do it for me in the way a lot of their stuff did. And why I'm bringing this up is because Shaka King is the kind of... Like, this is, to me, what I would have imagined. Like, it's great for Ryan Cougar that he got to go bigger. He got to jump and do a Rocky movie and then jump and do a Marvel movie. And he's now one of those powerful people in Hollywood, really. And he can help to get a film like this made. That's really great. And I'm happy for him. But this is the kind of project that I think, you know, scale and visually that I would have thought, oh, that could be where he goes. Because there's certain kind of directors where their skill is, they can tell the kind of mid-budget stories that don't get made anymore. And yet they have the power to get them made because their name eventually carries enough kind of cachet, carries enough buzz that they can go that route. Shaka King has made that here. He's made something that feels like a 70s American crime movie. Like aside from the, the historical context that's there, it's very much a 70s American crime movie. I've heard and read in interviews um, with him in the past week, like one of the things it was originally pitched as, and there was a couple of films involved in what it was pitched as, but one of the ones that continuously came up and that he's still quoting now is The Departed. And you can feel The Departed too, obviously in its storyline, its arc, but also in some of the filmmaking and in the kind of mood, the atmosphere that's created. I'm so impressed with the direction of this film. I'm really curious to see what he does next and also just kind of hoping that it doesn't go that he's not making a Marvel movie next. That's really where I'm going with this because there's just something much more interesting about a filmmaker this talented getting to do something that it is, it's, you know, in a lot of ways it's as big and bold and it's riskier, much riskier creatively. Like if this movie flopped critically i mean it can't really commercially in these current times but if it flopped critically it's a, probably a tough one to come back from because it's so tough to get a movie made about historical black figures to begin with to get to make one to get to make one with i, th- I think it's like a 25 to 30 million dollar reported budget which is you know it's not a blockbuster but it's it's more than most kind of indie studios can offer. Like, this is a big commercial movie. To do that, to have it look like this, and to have it move like this, I mean, it's really slick. It's really well edited. As I said, I do agree with your qualms over pacing, but I do think they are largely down to the story rather than choices that are being made in terms of editing or direction. And when they're down to the story, they're down to a loyalty to real events Plus, they're doing groundwork for, I guess, the other character and the lesser-known character in this story at that time. Those events, some of that may drag in the moment, but I think the payoff of them ultimately kind of comes around by the end. And I I can't remember exactly if the scene I'm thinking of comes during that period where it does drag a little bit. I will say that 
at, when it ramps up, where the story allows it to ramp up, and we get to the big finish, and like the gut punch moment, and then the resolution, and and then basically the I'll call it an afterward, but we learn what happened to Bill O'Neill. I think it really sticks the landing, and and that that the course of that journey feels very earned. So any pacing issues I have, it's just trying to quibble as small as I can with a movie. I I truly do uh, like. Um, the scene that I'm thinking of, I, I hope I'm in the right timeline in my mind, but it's when Bill O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield, gets, I think, to the headquarters, and there's someone from out of town from New Haven there, and tells a story of how they found an informant and, and killed him. And we get Bill O'Neill's reaction to that, where he's viscerally reacting to what he would have done if he had found an informant in their ranks and full well knowing uh he's an informant i think in an article i read a review in the ringer i think it might have been their exit survey i know i referenced the ringer a lot adam and you say i'm not paid by them so i apologize but i thought it was a really perfect uh way to sum up that scene is as the audience um knowing what we know we can see how hard he's trying to be convincing but it's not convincing oh, yeah. us. It's, but it's great else... acting and that he's overacting. Like he's exactly. very, he's intentionally overacting in a way that is still distinguishable to the audience in, oh, he's not just hanging it up. Like this isn't, he's not even overdoing it for the scene. We can see his intent while obviously the characters he's interacting with in the scene can't. Right. And to me, for, for some reason, that's just like expert level. Like, it's acting inception. <laughs> He's acting within acting. <laughs> and uh, so if it needs to drag a little bit where the character we want to spend most of our time with is in jail and we get to, to see Bill O'Neill a little more as he increases his, uh, I guess, responsibility within the organization and we get to see Lakeith Stanfield show out a little bit. I mean, I'm okay with it, but anyway, yeah, I think it is, I agree that it's a, and you know, I know, I know less about what I'm talking about when I see this, but I do say it's, it's a very well-directed movie. And, and I think that comes across, um, especially as it gets towards the end. I don't know if it's actually, I'm trying to think, is it straight after that scene? There's another great moment along those lines. If it's not after that scene, it's in the immediate aftermath of another encounter like that for Bill O'Neill, where we see, we actually see, I think it, it might be an argument at headquarters, and Lakeith Stanfield comes out through the back door, we see the door open and there's kind of, like he pushes a guy off him and he comes out the back door and we see him get into his car, starts the car and he starts to pull away, and he just starts kind of nervously laughing to himself, because again he's kind of, he's performed for all of these people, to make it clear um, you know oh it's not me someone we've got a rat but it's definitely not me i'm gonna come here and i'm gonna shout about the rat because it's definitely not me i mean i think we're we're into talking about performances now and we'll circle back i mean we're, we're talking a bit about like each there but we'll circle back to it in a moment because i think when we talk about pacing or any even any sense that the film might drag in the middle i don't know if it does drag to the extent that we might feel it does and part of that is because there's a void in the middle section of the film because Daniel Kalu is not in it as much as he has been up until that point. And his performance as Fred Hampton is incredible. And I mean, 
we've really reached the point of Daniel Kaluuya where I think he he might be number one on my list of like, oh, he's in the movie, I want to see it. And not just that, but oh, he's in the movie, I'm almost certainly going to like it. And there's just a... a there's an intensity and an authenticity he brings to whatever movie he's in. Like, whatever kind of character he's playing, um, and whatever kind of... Wherever they are on an emotional spectrum for, from scene to scene, he will unlock the most intense version of that particular emotion. He does it in a way where he's not just, like, believable, but he's hypnotizing. Like, he really has a a screen presence that I can't think of too many of his contemporaries that they have this. And in Fred Hampton, you've got this incredible speaker. And I can think a lot of people who would go up there and they're going to try to capture something and it'll be an impression. It'll be an imitation, but they won't just have their, their own kind of power and charisma to, carry off a lot of the big speeches in this film in the way that Daniel Kluya does. That's just so, so impressive. And I, I think what's like, what's really interesting to me, I mean, most people, I guess the, the real breakout for Daniel Kluya was get out. I think what I'm fascinated most with him by is that character and that performance is very different to what he's done since, because mostly he was, he was there to react. He was understated for large parts of that movie because everything else around him was the craziness. Um, he, like Keith Stanfield is a great example of someone else who got to, it was doing a whole lot more in terms of like dialed up to 11, um, even though he had considerably less screen time in that movie. But when you look at some of the stuff he's done since, like Daniel Kaluuya and Widows is one of the like five best performances of the last five or six years just incredible like just a pure shot that you get you're sitting there and you're like whoa like where is this come from this is who this guy is okay i don't know if you saw queen and slim i don't know how many people saw it did you see it i did not i love that film i think it's really really good uh, I've long been a fan of Melina Matsukas' TV work on shows like Insecure, Master of None. That movie looks incredible, and the performances, and for me particularly, Kaluuya's is just mind blowing. Again, he's really good. I was gonna throw up a spoiler alert and ask you a question. I'll save that for all fair about someone else that stars in the movie. Continue your point. Sorry about that. <laughs> Okay, we'll do we'll do that off air later. Whatever, whenever you feel, Andrew. This is your okay, podcast. Okay, let's get in a different way. Is Sergio Simpson in the movie? Is he? Oh, he is. He okay, is in the movie. A, I, I was just seeing if I could remember that correctly. Perfect. I'm nearly I'm nearly certain he's in the movie. I'll you know I'll check it later because I don't know how interested yeah. everyone listening is <laughs> to whether Sergio Simpson co-starred uh, with Daniel Kaluuya and Queen and Slim. But he he is in the movie. I've checked it. He's in the movie. As is Flea. You know, good movie for musician actors. Um, now, thanks for derailing me, Andrew. But this is, okay, so back to Kaluuya. So he appears here and, like, I, I really struggle to think of 
too many actors who could have played Fred Hampton. Who could have done what Kaluuya does in this film. I think I've got one. One kind of name actor that you could make this studio film with. Who I think could embody some of the same energy. And have some of the same screen presence. Don't he quite get to this level, but he come close. I see you're thinking. I don't know. Have you got anyone, or do you want to wager a guess? Um, John David Washington. No, you you got the first name right though. Um, so I thought for a second, oh, Andrew's got this. John Boyega is who I was thinking of. Um, and particularly like his work in in his small axe film, like. I think I I could see that there's not too many actors working though that I think could do that. And interestingly, I think the same applies to what Lakeith Stanfield does. Like I, I think this is perfectly cast. This movie just can't work for for as well directed as it is, for as good as the script is in a lot of ways. It can't work without two performers just as talented as they are. And the performances are great beyond that. We'll get into Dominic Fishback, we'll get into Jesse Plymans. But you know, the title characters of the film and what they're asked to do with how it's structured. Uh, I You need just incredibly magnetic performers who are great, great actors beyond that. They need to have screen presence. They also need to be just incredibly accomplished actors. And in both their cases, I think they they fit the bill perfectly. I think uh, I'll echo everything you just said, so I won't elaborate too much longer. But I think the one thing I like about Kaluuya and since since I've obviously seen some of the clips that have been um I think available of of Hampton speaking um and I think one of the things is interesting about what he does is he's not necessarily like you said trying to do an impression of someone but he captures the cadence and the mm-hmm. spirit and the emotion it's about an energy right yeah exactly and he just pulls that off so perfectly and there's especially in this type of role he's showcasing a restrained um anger because that's why wouldn't he be at at this time and just like a sense of calm and that he's in control of every situation even when it seems like he's not and i think just kaluuya i think brings that to a few different um performances widows in particular which is one where he's dialing up the intensity even further but there's still mm-hmm. that just like calm coolness about his character there i, I really need to rewatch widows is one of the things that that this conversation is bringing about me i think i need to do a widows queen and slim double feature uh sometime soon when i don't have movies to watch for the podcast but you know i'll i'll get to that at some point stanfield as well i think shines in those situations like you said where he's having to give a performance for a certain group of people to to make sure that his cover isn't blown and also i think the nervous energy that's emanating from him in any other situation when he's trying to quit or in particular another favorite scene i have in the film as we get towards the end when uh he has a discussion with uh wayne i think is the name who's played by lil ray howry who's an Mm -hmm. undercover fbi agent um and just like i think the the way i heard it described in that same ringer piece was just like it provides the sense of the all-knowing all-seeing american government in this situation where it's like even if he thinks he could get out there's always someone there who knows who he is and knows what he's doing 
and there's a pimp that, in the bar late at night. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and the uh, <laughs> the uh, the just outright panic he has as he's walking out to his car, I think, is amazing. And I mean, Kaluuya and Stanfield. If we, if I assume the movie world will be as weird as it is for at least some time forward until we're all vaccinated and movie theaters open and all that all that notwithstanding at some point if you and i adam just came in here and you know went back to our blogging days and did like a power ranking of a slideshow of our 10 favorite actors working right now i would be shocked if kaluuya and stanfield were both not on my list i just love basically everything that i see them do i say see them do because obviously i'm a delinquent and don't see as many movies as i should yeah you're, you you only see two or three films uh, a year total well not even for that but uh, that's okay We're, we'll get there slowly but surely you've got some homework you've given yourself some homework two movies that i think you'll well, one of them i know you like but you'll enjoy rewatching another that you, you'll probably like to watch for the first time i think kaluuya is very close to number one and that kind of stakes for me and it's his eyes are incredible. There's such power and stillness. It's it, like you talk about from what he does in Widows to what he does here. He can have this kind of quiet anger. Um, he His face, he can kind of have his face rest in a place that says so much more than the script is having him do. And he's also just a master of these kind of movements and gestures uh, I think a lot has been spoken about, you know, his head tilts. He very famously in Widows has an extreme example of that in one of those memorable scenes in the movie. But even there's some of that here. I, I think he first appears on screen and he's tilting his head when he first kind of starts talking in like the classroom setting as Fred Hampton. Um, so he just just a really incredible actor who with every film, I'm more and more interested in what he's going to do next. Seems like that might be a reunion with Jordan Peele. Just some news that was breaking before we start recording. So that that sounds fun to me. Um, the supporting cast. Dominique Fishback. The two things I have seen, certainly that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe I've seen her in more. Um, have you watched any of David Simon's recent TV work? I have not seen... I think I saw the pilot of the deuce and then fell off as I'm known to do. And I never saw show me hero. Okay. Well, Dominique Fishback is in both of those and (laughs) is almost certainly in the pilot of the deuce. I can't imagine that she wasn't. So that would have been when you seen her, but if you only watched for one episode, you wouldn't remember. Um, She's really, really good. And I think she's going to have a whole lot of, um, offers and different kind of opportunities coming out of this her career is likely going to just kind of level up from here but she is really really good she really i guess imbues the movie with all of its heart um and is particularly important i think for rounding out fred hampton as a character um and i think softening him not in the way that's taking anything away from the power of his message or his kind of actions or his will or his intent throughout the film, but in just kind of so much of the work that he talks about and that the black Panther chapter in Chicago in the movie are kind of focused on doing is work. That's, you know, it's in the community. It's 
looking after each other it's looking after their own and it's fighting back against i guess a system that is not looking out for them at all and i think for that to recapture that on screen and to make that feel like something that he's doing with a genuine kind of warmth and passion tapping into you know family and his own kind of love life is something that is important for the movie and it does it in a way that is very very effective and not overplayed it's not like there's extensive scenes that are just romance every scene that they share is working on multiple levels it's doing a lot of work for both of their character mostly for fred hampton's character um but it it never once does anything with that that is reducing deborah johnson his wife now known as akun jerry um to anything other than the significant figure that she was in this story and i think there's a real power in what she's doing and the film as a whole is much better for that um then jesse plemons just continues to hit everything he does all the way out of the park like just incredible um one of the most consistent actors working and i don't think it's close like if we're talking about again if you're making a list like that clemens is on my list um and here as roy mitchell as i guess the fbi agent who's essentially bill o'neill's handler he's doing a lot and it's a really interesting performance that i think in the future when i watch through this there'll probably be some point where I'll watch this and I'll just try to track the different kind of vibes and feelings that are coming from that particular character and trying to work out exactly how Clemens was playing him because it's the kind of role that you could get lots of really good actors to do and they give a solid performance, but you wouldn't feel any nuance. You wouldn't find yourself asking, you know, did that FBI agent waver at some point or what was really going through his head? Like, that's the difference with having an actor of this caliber is you feel all of those little moments where it's like, okay, Bill O'Neill is not the only person conflicted here. Or Bill O'Neill is not the only person being played by the system here. Like, it's coming from the person who is overseeing everything he does. And that's, like, I'm sure it's there. I'm sure it's there in the script. But actually conveying that to an audience with a role like that, um, which... I mean, it's just naturally the FBI agent in this movie. It's going to very naturally be an unsympathetic figure. And you don't have all that much screen time to get what he gets out of it is just immensely impressive. And I think it speaks to just how special Jesse Plemons is as an actor. And so what I love about that, that was one of the things I was going to comment on, because I think this type of character. Um, and now, obviously, they were there was a standard held by what happened in the actual story that they couldn't really deviate from. But say, for example, a fictional movie, say something like three bill, three billboards where Sam Rockwell's uh, racist policeman character gets his redemption arc at the end. Whereas with this character, it's more subtle than that. And it's like, you get into that situation where he's confronted by J Edgar Hoover and he has that, skin crawling conversation where he references his infant daughter. I won't 
describe the details of that. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. That's one of the things that disturbed me to no end going from this. And like you said, you see the part where you're like, is he wavering? Is he having some second thoughts about what's going on? But then we get to the very end of the film and we see him handing Bill O'Neill the keys to his new gas station and it, and his payoff and they're eating dinner in their fancy restaurant and he's moving on with his life. And, you know, this Bill O'Neill and things they do in the future are helping him make his career and rise through the ranks um, of the FBI. And so he's been manipulated by the system, but he's also steered into the evil that is the world that he's in. So it, it almost kind of subverts the expectations of what of redeeming that type of character and it gives you that moment of nuance and i think like you said it comes down to jesse Plemons' performance there and then it just takes him all the way down to hell by the time the movie ends and the fact that you can have those like different components to that character is a testament to his acting and and the writing as well um are we gonna have a moment to just feelings on martin sheen <laughs> that's jay edgar uh, hoover um, I thought it was a good performance. The, the, uh, the get The up, makeup the, is distracting. The makeup's doing a lot. <laughs> it's very distracting. Um, I, I, it's the weakest part of the film for me. I don't know if Sheen's performance is good or bad because I just found the whole thing distracting. Maybe that's a case where not getting Martin Sheen, getting someone a little or considerably more low profile um, might have just done that a favor because you're not thinking too much about it. And you could just see Hoover as opposed to being like, what, what is going on with Martin Sheen's face here? Like just trying to figure all of that out. Uh, but one of the very few and still a very minor gripe that I have with this film. Um, go on. I would have been fine with just Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover, and you have a nameplate come up when he's giving his address to the FBI at the beginning, and I know it's J. Edgar Hoover, and you don't need me to, like, think it's Leo as J. Edgar Hoover or something like that, where someone's being, like, really made up to be him. Uh, I would have been fine with that. Maybe maybe don't need the makeup. It's fine. Um, uh, one more thing before we transition to something else. I will say about Dominic fist back because i didn't get a chance to say anything about her i think some of the best acting um in the film uh comes from her comes during the assassination scene where we don't we don't see fred hampton get assassinated necessarily but the camera's on her and it's going on behind her and we know she knows exactly what's happening the whole time especially like when she's trying to wake him up as well as she she knows the game that's being played um and she knows it's an unfair game um, and I mean, it's just a heartbreaking scene and she plays it perfectly. But uh, yeah, uh, Dominique Fishback, great. Uh, Mar- Martin Sheen makeup, horrible. <laughs> Martin Sheen belonged in the trial of the Chicago 7. That's what his whole look, his performance. That's that's kind of my issue there. This is another film that is strangely in conversation with that movie. It's incredible that in this particular year that Aaron Sorkin made that film and then Mangrove comes out and then Judas and the Black Messiah comes out and you're getting stories set in that time period dealing with 
not dissimilar issues and content. And really where I'm going at this, because I was going to kind of wrap us up with, well, you know, what are we looking at here? What should we be looking at awards-wise? Where will this fit in? Um, Trial of Chicago 7 is going to win Best Picture. That's what's going to happen, because this is the world we live in. These are the Oscars and what they choose to do. I'd like to think that's not going to be the case. This movie should be... I think, in my opinion, the most nominated and the kind of one of the biggest players when it comes to Oscar season, and I think that would be a fair representation of the movie, and it kind of also slotting into well the type of films that will also get consideration from the Academy. Um, of course, there are a couple of key things here that mean it's not the type of film that generally gets consideration from the Academy, and um, the whole subject matter and you know the color of the director and the cast and things like that would seem to generally be working against it in the Academy mold. Um, but I know you've still got some catching up to do, but of, of the movies that are going to be awards players, the, this is the one to me that, you know, if it's, even if it's not going to win best picture, I think like Daniel Kaluuya needs to be winning an Oscar and there's there's nothing suggesting that's gonna happen really. Um it might just be a tough one because this is arriving now. Like this is arriving basically like what a couple of days before a normal Oscar ceremony would have been held. This is the latest of the kind of big players. I guess Monari, I think, was released the same day, but Monari's chances are probably a little bit um, more of a long shot to begin with, coming from A24, as opposed to this. This is like a Warner Brothers movie with movie stars, like grade A movie stars. So I'd like to think there will be a nice Oscar surprise, and this will get consideration in multiple categories. Um, I think both, well, really, you know, Plemons is deserving too, but I think Kaluuya and Stanfield particularly both very much deserving of kind of Oscar consideration. Dominique Fishback too. Um, I absolutely think Shaka King should be in the mix. I, I think the cinematography is great without being really flashy or re- without necessarily doing anything that's reinventing the wheel. I think it's great. It's uh, shot by Sean Bobbo, who before Small Axe, I believe he's done all of Steve McQueen's films. He shot Widows, shot 12 Years a Slave, Hunger, Shame. Um, so just an incredibly talented cinematographer who uh, just the whole film and how it particularly like the the mixture of kind of natural light, the way the kind of nighttime scenes in particular, the street lights soak in. It just has a really nice kind of look to it. It's it's kind of very, very polished in a way that's not off-putting. Um, I would say he's deserving of consideration too. But look, Andrew, the Oscars are frequently ridiculous. And I'm sure we'll talk about them at some point when nominations happen and possibly get angry about them. But a lot of the stuff that's done in this film is right up there with the very best of anything that's going to be in the mix. Because of of future podcasts, I won't um, divulge specifics. But my best actor and my best actress are both locked in. One of them is from this movie. 
I'm sure you know what the other is, but you know, we can talk about that at a later date. I, I got, feel much. I, be- I'm not. I'm not allowing this. You've got too many films to see. No, you you can't take away my best actress or best actor. These are both locked in. Nothing's gonna be better than these two in my mind. I'm biased. We'll talk. We'll talk about it off air. I I think you've got you've got a lot to see. I'm I'm not sure if you've seen any of the nominees. <laughs> In um, in acting categories, th- there's a chance the there's... Oscar list. I, I'm sure you've seen some, but there's definitely I could think of multiple very high profile, particularly on the actress side that I know you haven't seen yet. Lee I and mean, supporting the, the Golden Globes was a rude awakening. So well, <laughs> if that's that's always the case, the Golden Globes are a rude awakening for me in a different way. Um, I've seen most of the films, but yeah, still always a rude awakening. But I, I think there's some stuff that I'm not gonna. I'm a, I'm actually not sure, but we'll I'll ask you off air where you're going. I'm missing a joke there, but I you definitely have some watching to do before you can make those decisions. Lock and Kaluuya. I'm not, I'm not gonna fight that one too hard. Um, any final thoughts on Judas and the Black Messiah? I don't have anything. I think we uh, we covered a lot of the ground. I would suggest to anyone that's made it this far in the podcast that hasn't seen it to see it, um, as we as we often do. Um, I see that Casey Affleck was once in negotiations oh, to produce. I was, I was I'm glad just that not going to talk about that on air. Um, that's not even the worst part of that version that didn't happen, but. You know, we don't need to tar this very good film with what it could have been and thankfully didn't end up being. Um, but yeah, no, I'm glad we got this version. That's my final thought. This is really good. And yeah, that was going to be my take. I was going to talk about alternate reality versions of this movie that did not happen. And I, I think, to your point, I'm glad they didn't happen. But yeah. Um, I think right now there's a lot of us who would like to live in a different reality, but my counter to that would be, what if you got to live in a different reality and it was the reality where that version of Judas and the Black Messiah was made? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to like Wikipedia and you'll they'll have it, I'm sure. And yeah, you'll get you'll get the picture then. Okay, I think that does it for us for this particular episode. And um, we're doing something a little bit different next week. We don't have a new film coming out that not that I'm aware of, anyway. Maybe something will come up and I'll be like, damn, we could have done that and we'll do it the following week. Um, but we've been on a run of new movies, so we're going to do something that's a little bit different. It's not quite a new movie. It's a movie that um, I think could well feature when we talk about our favorite movies of the last year and as the Oscars come closer and we talk about, I guess, our equivalents of that. Um, and that is Vast of Night uh, on Prime Video a film that basically blew my mind when it came out sometime around last summer. Um, I loved it. Andrew has seen it, which is a good start for when I'm announcing. It doesn't happen a lot when I'm announcing. Um, but we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to spin that off into another movie that blew my mind when I saw it recently. It's a film that's a good few years older. It had been on my kind of hit list for quite some time. It's something I wanted to see. hadn't got, to check it out finally did and i loved it and that is coherence um and in talking about these two movies we're going to spin off into talking more generally about 
ultra kind of low budget sci-fi. Um, but the Vassanite and James Ward Burgett's coherence are I mean, all of your homework for next week and and yours too, Andrew. Yeah, I saw Vast of Night at 6 a.m. while uh, waking up early to make brisket, which is how I think the director intended to be seen. <laughs> so if anyone's following uh, like strict lines on how you experience cinema, go buy a brisket, you know, throw it on the smoker, fire up Vast of Night. To make sure you catch that episode and all future episodes of Captured Celluloid, you can subscribe to us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is. We are also to be found on Twitter at Captured on Cell. You can find Andrew and I there too. I don't know if we want. Do we want people to find us? No, don't follow me on Twitter. Depends if depends if you've got nice things to say or not. That's always the thing, I suppose. Um, but as always, we appreciate you all for listening. Thank you. We'll be back again very soon. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>